Last time we spoke about the planning for Operation Galvanic and the Battle of Saddleburg. The Americans were finally going to make their thrust into the Central Pacific with Operation Galvanic. Admiral Raymond Spruance was given command of the Central Pacific Force and he began building his war machine. The Americans would be employing an arsenal of new toys to hit the Gilbert Islands. Meanwhile, the Japanese did everything they could to fortify the Gilberts, Marshalls and Carolines for the incoming American offensives. They would make them pay with blood for every island. Over in Green Hill, the Australians were advancing up Saddleburg Road, seizing Green Ridge, Coconut Ridge and other features. General Katagiri was once again on the defensive, and it was only a matter of time before Saddleburg was under a siege. Today we are going to cover all of this and more. This episode is The Bloody Invasion of the Gilberts. Welcome back to the Pacific War Podcast week by week, and I'm your dutiful host, Craig Watson. But before we begin, I just want to remind you all that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about World War II? Kings and Generals has an assortment of episodes on World War II and so much more, so go give them a look over at YouTube. So please, subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, the Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that you were still hungry for some more history, watch check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel over at YouTube. Over there I've just released a new episode on France's role during the Pacific War in both French and English. Also, please check out my Patreon account at www.patreon.com slash the Pacific War Channel for more exclusive podcasts. Some of the exclusive podcasts coming out over there are on Why Japan Performed So Many Atrocities During World War II, the story of a man who fought for the Japanese, Russians, and Germans during World War II, and a rather silly story about Churchill drinking and fighting a shark. It's a true story. Last week, we went through in-depth the planning behind Operation Galvanic. The time had finally come to invade the Gilbert Islands. To soften up the islands, carrier-borne airstrikes were made against the Gilberts and Marshalls. One of the major impacts of the raids in September and October was the evacuation of the aircraft from Tarawa. Just before the raids, there had been three air installations in the 3rd Special Base Force area, two airfields at Nauru and one at Tara, with a seaplane base at Makin. One of the duties assigned to these installations was to maintain patrols in the southeast corner of the Central Pacific. Patrols from Nauru covered the area south of the island, Patrols from Makin covered the east, and patrols from Tarawa the southeast between the other two. Yet after the removal of so many aircraft from Tarawa, now Makin had to assume full responsibility for patrolling the Gilberts area. By November, there was only four amphibious reconnaissance planes left at Makin. And even worse, they had the dual mission of reconnaissance and anti-submarine patrol. Thus, in other words, there were not enough eyes out on lookout. On November the 10th, Admiral Spruance led out his Central Pacific Force from Hawaii, en route for Tarawa aboard his flagship, the heavy cruiser Indianapolis. The Northern Attack Force, Northern Carrier Group, and Interceptor Carrier Group all departed from the Hawaiian Islands simultaneously, but they would not be traveling together. The two carrier groups moved in a parallel course followed by the Northern Attack Force at around 300 miles to their northwest. The two routes of approach would change at around 800 miles east of the Gilberts, with the Northern Attack Force turning in to meet them. As the force made its way, Spruance warned, If a major portion of the Japanese fleet were to attempt to interfere with Galvanic, it is obvious that the defeat of the enemy fleet would at once become paramount. The destruction of a considerable portion of the Japanese naval strength would go as far towards winning the war. Even within the Navy, there were critics of Operation Galvanic. While Spruance was taking the 5th Fleet along with 30,000 Marines, Vice Admiral John Towers grumbled, Spruance wants a sledgehammer to drive attack. And indeed, the battle for Tarawa would be one of the most controversial engagements of the Pacific War. Over at a fate, Admiral Hill's southern force departed November the 13th to rendezvous with Turner by the 18th. 
On November the 15th, the relief carrier force consisted of two carriers, three cruisers, and four destroyers that departed Espirito Santo and the new hybrids. They were a last-minute add-on heading towards Nauru. Thus, the southern carrier group and the southern attack force moved parallel to another to rendezvous with the rest by the 18th. During the two days before the landings, both the Navy and Army aircraft delivered last-minute airstrikes. At 3 a.m. on the 18th, Admiral Ponell's task force launched 18 fighters, followed three hours later by 20 more fighters, and at intervals of two to three hours, dive bombers, torpedo bombers, and more fighters came out. All day long, these aircraft strafed and bombed narrow. By the end of the day, 90 tons of bombs had been dropped. The pilots claimed the installations on the island were in ruins. A Japanese ship was a burning wreck, and about three to four medium bombers were destroyed on the ground. The next day saw the same carrier attack with the help of land-based planes from the 7th Air Force bombers. The airfields on Nauru were hit, shipping as well, and Nauru was thought to be completely neutralized. On the 19th, the interceptor carrier group of Admiral Ponell's task force launched a series of airstrikes against Jaluit and Mille. Over 130 tons of bombs were dropped over them. Power stations at both atolls were destroyed, hangars burnt down, buildings were in ruins. The runways looked unserviceable at Mille, and three vessels in her lagoon were heavily damaged, alongside three grounded aircraft that seemed to be destroyed. On that same day, 19 B-24s from Nukufuta and Funafuti dropped 10 tons of bombs on Tarawa, causing fires and damaging our airfields. 12 more B-24s from Nanama dropped 23 tons of bombs on Makin. Aircraft from the northern and southern carrier groups added 95 tons of bombs on Makin and 69 tons on BTO Island. One enemy plane was shot down and three were hit on the ground near Tarawa. Before noon on the 19th, the southern carrier group's cruisers and destroyers moved in closer to Tarawa to bombard the ground forces between the airstrikes. One of the most important effects of the heavy air raids was getting the Japanese to waste a considerable amount of their ammunition against the aircraft. At Tarawa, the Japanese expended an estimated 1,437 rounds of 127mm anti-aircraft gunfire, 1,312 75mm, 51,160 13mm, 46 8-inch shells, and 104 14cm ammunition. At Mackin, it was perhaps nearly 10,000 rounds of 13mm. The loss of all of the 13mm machine gun ammunition would hurt the Japanese particularly hard, since it was the base weapon for the ground defenses. Shortly before 11.30pm on the 19th, the convoy entered the 17-mile-wide channel between Mayana and the Tarawa Atolls. The ships assumed positions west of Betio. Transports took up their debarkation positions, and fire support ships moved into the shore for another massive bombardment. At dawn on November the 20th, the USS Maryland and Colorado, sister dreadnoughts from World War I of the Colorado class, laid down a barrage of fire upon the defenders of Betio. It provided a measure of revenge for the USS Maryland, which had been damaged during the attack on Pearl Harbor. Their combined firepower of 16 16-inch guns was able to quickly knock out three out of the four 8-inch guns defending Betio, both from the lagoon side to the north and to the open sea to the south and west. A fortunate hit on one of the Japanese guns' ordnance stores sent up a massive fireball. Rear Admiral Howard Kingman, responsible for planning the bombardment of Tarawa, would tell the press aboard his ship, Gentlemen, it is not our intention to wreck the island. We do not intend to destroy it. Gentlemen, we will obliterate it. The air on the naval barrage of the island would last three hours. Aboard the USS Ashland, an officer boasted, The Marines will go in standing up. There aren't 50 Japs left alive on that island. Lieutenant Colonel Herbert Amy, leading the 2nd Battalion, 2nd Marines, boasted to his staff, As we hit the beach, the planes will be strafing very close in front of you to keep the nips down until you can get in there and knock off what's left of them. I think we ought to have every Jap off the island, the live ones, by the night of D-Day. Yet, despite the incredible firepower, Colonel David Shoup, leading the assault troops, shared some concerns with Robert Sherrod, working for the Time and Life magazine. What worries me more than anything is that our boats may not be able to get over the coral shelf that sticks out about 500 yards. 
We may have to waddle in. Colonel Red Mike Edson would go on to say this of the upcoming battle. The enemy must endeavor to hold it and make sure its capture is as costly to us as possible. This will be the first attempt to defend an atoll, as it is our endeavor at seizing one. Before dawn, the Marines woke up to a last meal of steak and eggs with fried potatoes and coffee. They all gave a final check of their combat kits, their M1 Garands, bayonets, three days of rations, water, the bedding, grenades, 125 bullets, gas masks, toiletry items, three pairs of socks and underwear, their entrenching tool, first aid kits, and the most important item in their kit, their cigarettes. As the Marines moved to their debarkation stations, military chaplains passed through the troops offering last-minute homilies. God bless you. Go out there and bring glory to our Corps. Father Francis Kelly from Philadelphia and a veteran of Guadalcanal ended his service with, God bless you and God have mercy on the Japanese. At 6.03 a.m., the transports began lowering their boats. At 6.15 a.m., the carrier-borne Hellcat fighters, Avengers and Dauntless from the USS Essex and Bunker Hill began to strafe and bomb the western beaches. At 6.40 a.m., the aircraft began departing as the battleships, cruisers, and destroyers opened fire. The damage from the aerial and naval bombardments was considerable. In the intermediate region of the main beaches in the eastward side, very little real damage was inflicted, however. Coconut trees, native huts, dummy gun positions, they took a lot of the hits. In the area of the west tank barrier, neither the ditches nor log barricades took much damage. Just east of the main tank trap was a trench system running to the beach, and this area was smashed up pretty good. One trench received a direct hit from a 2,000-pound bomb, which, in the words of Admiral Turner, considerably scrambled the trench, chaps, and trees for some distance. 62 enemy dead were later counted in this one area, most of whom were the victims of the combination of concussion and air bursts. In the area south of Yellow Beach and east of the East Tank Barrier, all buildings were reportedly destroyed. Three 80mm anti-aircraft positions at the base of King's Wharf and two light tanks riveted to act as pillboxes were severely damaged. 41 enemy dead were counted, and of whom 25 were apparently killed by concussion from heavy bombs. At 8.25, the naval bombardment ended and more aircraft came in for strafing. While the aircraft strafed, the 165th Regiment began loading onto some LCBPSs, and the amphibian tractors would carry men of the 105th Regiment. At 8.15, the tractors started to head for the beach while firing rockets and machine guns against what they assumed to be enemy positions. At 8.31, the tractors hit the beach and the men began to scramble ashore. Beach Red 1 and 2 were quickly occupied forming the first beachhead. Following the tractors were the first three waves of landing craft at about five-minute intervals. They were met with unfriendly studded reefs and coral boulders about 40 yards offshore. Some of the landing craft were unable to slip past the larger boulders. Some were broached, stranded, or forced to pull back out to sea. The failures of these landings would lead Rear Admiral Richmond Turner to create the Underwater Demolition Teams, UDT, a precursor to the U.S. Navy SEALs. The tanks were waterproofed for the landings and managed to roll off the ramps into the water. The men struggled in the swells, sometimes over their heads, and sought cover at the edge of the beach. At best, only three boats could be landed at one time, and the fifth wave was not able to get ashore until 10, over an hour behind schedule. Facing the Marines would be 798 men led by Lieutenant Seizo Ishikawa, the commander of the 3rd Special Base Force Makin Detachment. 284 of his men were from his detachment. Alongside them were 100 air personnel, 138 men from the 11th Construction Unit, and 267 men of the 4th Fleet Construction Department Detachment, which was made up mostly of Korean laborers. They had established three defensive areas. The aviation personnel took up the east, the 3rd Special Base men the middle, and the Korean laborers the west. Thus, only 284 combat troops, with the rest being support staff, would face this onslaught. Ishikawa had established a perimeter defense around the seaplane base on the lagoon shore. 
They had three dual-purpose 8cm guns at King's Wharf, with a few other machine guns around. Running from the lagoon to the beach were two anti-tank barriers. They were wide ditches with coconut log barriers going around 13 feet wide and 5 feet deep. Numerous anti-tank guns were around them. Behind were concrete pillboxes, machine gun positions, rifle pits, and trenches. Everywhere was tripwires with booby traps. Luckily for General Smith, Ishikawa's defensive positions were between the two tank barriers as the Japanese had predicted the invasion of the island would be made there. Over on Bedio Island were 4,836 men led by Admiral Keiji Shibazaki. Of this, 1,122 men were from the 3rd Special Base Force, 1,247 were from the 111th Construction Unit, 970 were of the 4th Fleet Construction Department Detachment, and 1,497 were the Sasebo 7th SNLF. The Sasebo 7th were also known as the Riku Sentai, elite marine paratroopers modeled on the German Luftwaffe paratroop brigades. During the Pacific War, 50,000 Riku Sentai troops were deployed. They wore dark green uniforms modeled on the German paratrooper counterpart, dark brown belts, and harnesses with white anchor patches. Recruits were forced to learn by heart Emperor Meiji's 1882 Imperial Rescript to soldiers. The war song Umi Yubaka was also their prophetic line. Across the sea, corpses in the water, I shall die for the emperor. As marine historian Colonel Joseph Alexander concluded in his work, Utmost Savagery, Three Days on Tarawa in 1995, American expeditionary forces would not encounter a more sophisticated series of defensive positions on any subsequent island until they reached Iwo Jima in 1945. Yard for yard, Betio was the toughest fortified position the Marines would ever face. The Americans were about to see Japan's water-edge strategy. The directive was simply... Concentrate all fires on the enemy's landing point and destroy him at the water's edge. Rear Admiral Keiji Shibizaki was an aggressive young officer who demanded his troops build defenses to, quote, withstand assault by a million men for a hundred years. Yet it was his predecessor, Rear Admiral Sichiro, who had 50 pillboxes and bunkers constructed across an island that was just 800 yards at its widest points two miles in length. Shibazaki added kettle mines to impede the landing boats or direct them to his kill zones. Double barbed wire fences were dug into coral shallows encircling the island 50 to 100 yards from the shore. Yet as noted by warrant officer Kiyosha Oda, the only Japanese officer to survive the battle for Tarawa, Rear Admiral Shibazaki could not get a cargo ship to bring over cement and steel to reinforce his planned 4,500 tetrahedrums to surround the island, nor reinforce the countless pillboxes. Nonetheless, Betio was bristling with an armada of guns. Betio held four 8-inch guns, four 14-centimeter guns, four 12.7-centimeter, six 8-centimeter, 10 75-millimeter mountain guns, six 70-millimeter howitzers, eight 7-centimeter dual-purpose guns, nine 37-millimeter field guns, 27 12mm guns, 4 13mm guns, and 7 tanks with 37mm guns of their own. Betio was a fortress full of steel, concrete, and coconut log emplacements. The entire island was organized for battle. Within their defensive positions, the Japanese had bomb-proof ammunition and personal shelters in depth. The Allies would be facing beach guns, anti-tank ditches, beach barricades, numerous obstacles, and booby traps everywhere. Tarawa would be the most heavily defended atoll ever invaded by Allied forces in the Pacific. H-Hour, the landing of the first wave, had been scheduled for 8 a.m. on November the 20th, but Admiral Hill's transports had run into some problems. They arrived to the scene around 5.50 a.m. and began lowering their boats, but it turned out they were too far south and in range of the enemy's coastal guns. The Japanese opened fire on them, forcing them back to their designated positions at the lagoon entrance. American warships, meanwhile, began bombarding the Japanese coastal guns and positions. The airstrikes arrived a bit late to the scene to add their payloads to the mix. Meanwhile, two minesweepers, the Pursuit and Requisite, and two destroyers, 
Ringgold and Dashiell fought their way into the Tarawa Lagoon to sweep for mines. The Japanese coastal guns fired upon them, seeing Ringgold suffer moderate damage from 5-inch gunfire. The choppy seas delayed the arrival of the amphibian tractors, thus H-hour was moved up to 9 a.m. In the meantime, at least one 8-inch coastal gun and two 120mm anti-aircraft batteries had been neutralized by the naval gunfire. And just about everything above ground or in open pits, like personnel, bombs, trucks, and munitions, were most likely destroyed. The camouflage screens over the dugouts were wiped away, and Chibizaki's network of telephone wire, mostly laid above ground, was completely obliterated. Thus, his whole system of communication was paralyzed. Despite all of this, the damage was not nearly enough. Along the beaches were rows of pillboxes, some concrete, steel, and coconut made. At Red Beaches 2 and 3, there were at least five machine gun pits, pointing towards where the troops would land over reefs towards the shore. As Admiral Hill put it, That was five too many. By 8.55 a.m., the tractors were still late, but Hill ceased all naval gunfire anyway, allowing them to begin their approach. The volume of intensity of fire grew as the boats motored in towards the landing beaches. Shibazaki's 75mm field guns and 37mm anti-tank guns were positioned perfectly to hit the incoming boats. Neither the Amtraks nor the Higgin boats had enough armor to stop such shells. William Rogel's boat took a 37mm shell to her bow, and Rogel recalled, The force of the explosion threw his body to the rear of the Amtrak, showering everyone on the port side with blood and brains. As Lieutenant Lillybridge's boat came under similar fire, the shells pierced their starboard and port side simultaneously, forcing the men to toss themselves onto the flat bottom. Light motors showered them all, sending shrapnel into several marines. Most of the first wave boats headed towards Red Beach 1, in a cove tucked between the pier and the northwestern point of the island. The approach to Red Beach 1 held a significant amount of crossfire by weapons of various calibers. The men began to hit the beach at 9.10 a.m. Landing ashore was the 3rd Battalion's 2nd Marines, who were met with tremendous fire. The Marines quickly ran into a log barricade. Some of their tractors were smashed up and burning dead in the water. If those inside them were still alive, they climbed over the sides to try and wade ashore. The vehicles that made it onto the land soon were halted by the log barricade. This would see Marines jump over and under machine gun fire. K Company took so many casualties, they were unable to move past the log barricade, and now they had to lie in an exposed area under constant fire. By 11 a.m., K Company would push a few men over the coconut barrier, but by this point, the two leading companies had suffered 50% casualty rates. Reserve Company L, led by Major Michael P. Ryan, were just landing to the east, and they would lose 35% of their strength before even touching the beach. A platoon of M4 Shermans attached to the 3rd Battalion were tossed into the water, but four of them got stuck in potholes in the coral reef and they drowned out. Only two tanks actually made it to the beach. Meanwhile, at 9.22, the 2nd Battalion's 2nd Marines also landed in the chaos and confusion at Red Beach 2. Company F was to hit the left while Company E took the right, and Company G would act in support. Similar to Red Beach 1, a 4-foot-high log barricade had been constructed to form some kind of seawall. Most of the barricade lay 20 yards from the water's edge, leaving a narrow open strip of deep coral sand for the Marines to traverse. Numerous pillboxes and shelters lay around the barricade in intervals. Rogel's Amtraks headed to Red Beach 2 through motor bursts that showered his men with shrapnel. When the boat grounded on the sand, Rogel shouted, Let's go! And the men went over the sides through machine gun fire. Rogel rushed forward and could see above the seawall to the left a machine gun emplacement. It was one of the major strong points, and it would kill roughly 300 Marines that day. The Amtraks drove onto the beaches and lowered their ramps with most of the first wave units making it to the seawall, providing some shield from enemy fire. However, going any further was near suicide. A few brave souls climbed over, and they were shot to pieces. Men sat, they crouched, all around the wall, with their hands down waiting for tanks and aerial support. The volume of Japanese motor, artillery, and automatic fire was tremendous. F Company was decimated, but managed to grab the left half of the beach near the pier, digging in on some coral sand. 
E Company suffered heavy casualties, and the reserve G Company landed in the center and was immediately pinned down. As the men were huddled along the coconut barrier, they began to systematically eliminate enemy positions that jutted out on the beach. Further to the east, at 9.17 a.m., the 2nd Battalion 8th Marines of Major Henry Crow began landing at Red Beach 3. They were backed up by four medium tanks of the 2nd Tank Battalion. Three of the tanks would be put out of action within just two hours. The Marines at Red Beach 3 enjoyed more success than the others thanks to additional naval bombardment support that lasted just until seven minutes of their landing. They suffered just 25 casualties as they rapidly burst through the coconut barricade by driving LVTs through it. Company E led the way, continuing as far inland as the triangle that was formed by the main airstrips and their taxiways. Colonel David Shoup's 2nd Marines were in dire trouble at Red Beach 2, and he had to commit the Reserve 1st Battalion, who landed there, and they were ordered to work their way west towards Red Beach 1, in the hopes of aiding the 3rd Battalion. By 11 a.m., two companies in amphibious tractors came over and suffered the same fire that had decimated the other waves, but managed to get their men ashore. When General Smith heard about Shoup's call for reinforcements, he also sent the Reserve 3rd Battalion 8th Marines in relief to the right flank. Boating over in their LCVPs, the battalion were halted by the reef line. They were forced to wade ashore under heavy fire during the afternoon. Supply barges were unable to reach the beaches, forcing the reserve troops to carry most of the vital supplies themselves. Colonel Shoup had radioed the transports intermittently throughout the day, asking for more ammunition, water, and medical supplies. But these calls just caused more confusion amongst the shipping. The transport commanders had been tossing boat after boat carrying supplies but they had no real picture of the situation between their boats and the beach. Captain Henry Knowles would end up sending Major Ben Weatherwax ashore just to determine what the supply situation was actually like. It would literally take them until dawn to get a complete picture, that picture being that Shoup had received virtually none of the supplies supposed to be dispatched to him. Additionally, two M4 Shermans were brought up to help the battered 3rd Battalion 2nd Marines who were driving across the island towards the south shore. The Marines hit shelter to shelter, making steady progress. The tanks got within 300 yards of the south shore when 40mm gunfire knocked them both out. The progress allowed Major Michael Ryan to discover that part of Green Beach, on the western coast of Bedio, was available for landing reserves. Unable to relay this to Shoup, he ultimately had to pull out and dig in to form a defensive position. While the Americans were suffering communication problems, the Japanese had a much worse one. The naval bombardment had destroyed the communication lines to the Japanese HQ, preventing Rear Admiral Shibizaki to lead. But that problem was soon solved. It was solved when a 5-inch air burst shell fired from either the Ringgold or the Dashiell hit his HQ, killing him and all his senior officers. The last message Shibizaki received before his death was from Emperor Hirohito, stating this, You have all fought gallantly. May you continue to fight to the death. Banzai. Shibazaki had planned to launch a counterattack, but now his forces were, for the first two critical days of the battle, leaderless, demoralized, and uncoordinated. Concurrently, the 8th Marines were fighting to hold the triangle position they acquired under heavy attacks from the Japanese. F Company was in a brutal fight around the Burns Philip Wharf, facing a Japanese counterattack supported by tanks. The buildings were all ablaze, as tanks and flamethrowers were firing upon everything that they could. By nightfall, the Japanese counterattack had failed. To the right, Shoup's 2nd Marines were unable to organize a proper attack because their forces were all over the place. They held a pinned down toehold around the beach, but many units had penetrated some 125 yards inland, and now pockets were fighting all over. Throughout the night, men were frantically carrying supplies ashore but few supplies were actually reaching the beaches. There was an enormous failure in communications. Aboard the USS Maryland, the only information General Julian Smith was receiving came from reports of observers in planes, intercepted radio messages, and a few direct reports from Colonel Shoup. By 1.43 p.m., Smith ordered General Hermel to go to the end of the pier to get an estimation of the situation ashore. At 3.10, Hermel tried his best to relay the information, but he couldn't get through. Hormel recommended the 1st Battalion 8th Marines to be committed to Red Beach 2, but this message never made it to Smith. 
Meanwhile, Smith ordered Hermel to take command of the troops ashore. But that message never reached him. At 425, Smith ordered Colonel Hall, commanding the 8th Marines, to land on the eastern beaches. But he also never received the message. So most of his men spent the night just floating in their boats. Luckily, by 8.19 p.m., Colonel Hall received a message and he landed at Red Beach too, whereupon he didn't receive any further messages. Over at McKinn, Admiral Turner landed the 1st and 3rd Battalion's 165th Regiment. General Ralph Smith's plan called for the rapid capture of Flink Point and Ukigong Point, along with the occupation of the area east of Red Beaches to the 1st Beachhead Line, around 1,300 yards inland. The 1st Battalion would hit Flink Point and the left half of the Beachhead Line. The 3rd Battalion would hit Ukigong Village and its point, and it was also responsible for the right half of the Beachhead Line. The 1st Battalion advanced, overcoming some barbed wire, log barricades, and an undefended observation tower. The 3rd Battalion made equal progress, finding very little resistance. By 10.30 a.m., the Beachhead Line was secured. Company A and Detachment Y had been dispatched northwards to occupy Flink Point. L Company with Detachment X were turning south to take Ukigong Village and to clear the point beyond it. General Smith expected some resistance at Ukigong, but the point was taken unopposed. Therefore, Smith elected to establish an artillery position there. Flink Point was taken by 1240, making the operation quite easy and very successful. After receiving word at 8 a.m. that the Kotabu Detachment had taken the island without opposition, Turner decided to go ahead with the landings on Yellow Beach. At 10.05 a.m., the landing forces advanced towards Yellow Beach. The destroyers McDonough and Phelps began a bombardment using their 5-inch guns. The first wave of 16 amphibian tractors began approaching as they fired their rockets against the beach. Following this up in about a minute was the second wave of 8 LCMs carrying medium tanks, followed two minutes later by the third wave, 7 LCMs carrying more medium tanks, then another two minutes after was the fourth wave carrying two LCVPS with troops and four LCMs with light tanks. The next four waves would consist of LCVPS carrying the bulk of the assault troops and a bulldozer. At 10.20, the tractors were around 600 yards off the beach when the two destroyers ceased their firing to allow a last-minute strafing run by carrier planes. As they approached, the men in the tractors crouched low to avoid the rain of bullets that began at around 500 yards. At 10.41, they hit the beaches and one Amtrak ran up to the seaplane ramp at King's Wharf. Enemy shellfire struck two Amtraks, killing five men and wounding 12. One lone tractor lost control and drove straight across the island towards the ocean shore, directly through the main Japanese defenses. It ended up in a shell crater with two of its crew killed by enemy machine gun fire, but the others managed to jump into the brush. Upon jumping out of their tractors, the Americans made their way inland by crawling along the western slope of the causeway. The pier was captured rather quickly. Detachment Z then divided into two groups, one to take King's Wharf, the other on Chong's Wharf. King's Wharf was taken unopposed, but on Chong's Wharf would offer some tough resistance. The 105th Regiment fought their way through dugouts and bombproof shelters to get to the wharf by dusk. They then began to mass-throw grenades into the wharf emplacements, killing many Japanese. 35 prisoners would soon be captured, and by noon, Anchong's wharf was secured. Back over at the beach, 15 medium tanks landed on the beach, with two becoming stuck immediately in shell holes in the reef. The other tanks split up, advancing east and west against the two tank barriers. Unfortunately, they were not very well coordinated, and they began operating independently. Behind the tanks was the 2nd Battalion 165th Regiment, whose LCVPS grounded themselves on the reef. The landing troops had little to no opportunity to locate where all this incessant fire was being poured down from. It only seemed to be coming from the right flank. At the very offset, they believed the fire was coming from two battered and scuttled hulks resting near Anchong's Wharf. Their first effort to knock these out were made by an LCVP commanded by Joseph Casper. The boat mounted three of its guns on the starboard side and ran for the hulks while firing all at once. Casper was fatally wounded during the run and one of the guns jammed on him. The incredible fire was halting the men. So, at 11.25 and at 12.50, carrier planes bombed and strafed the hulks. Alongside this, the destroyer Dewey bombarded them, scoring numerous hits. But by 12.07 was ordered to cease fire because a few hits hit some friendlies. 
Finally, at 12.57, Major Dennis Clare ordered a stop to the bombardments so he could lead E Company to hit the eastern tank barrier. They met light resistance until they came to the area of King's Wharf. There they ran straight into some concealed pillboxes that would halt their advance for over four hours. The men tried rifle grenades, bazookas, artillery barrages, but the pillboxes kept returning fire. Then they tried a daring encirclement maneuver under artillery support. The men had crawled and crept in a wide circle reaching the pillboxes just about 40 yards or so away. They attempted to use flamethrowers, but the defenders fired back and hit those said flamethrower units. Then some engineers brought over TNT which was tossed straight into the pillboxes and exploded, just before some light tanks rolled up firing using their 37mm rounds. By 4pm the pillboxes finally ceased firing. Eight Americans had been killed taking them down. E Company then advanced a bit before digging in for the night. F Company advanced across the atoll west to attack the western part of the tank barrier. They did not encounter much resistance, excluding the incredibly difficult jungle. By noon, they reached the ocean shore where they reorganized their lines and made their way south alongside five Sherman tanks to assault the west tank barrier. F Company and the tanks ran into a tank trap with underground shelters full of Japanese defenders. Some labor troops were also there armed with knives and a few rifles. F Company proceeded to use TNT pole charges to blow up the shelters and flamethrower units which quickly became the preferred weapon to face the Japanese underground defenses. During the fight, F Company had eight deaths and six wounded. By 1.30 p.m., they had reached the barrier. The third platoon of F Company were attacking a section due south of Anchong's Wharf, where an enemy air raid shelter was. The shelter was around 30 feet long with a blast-proof entrance on either side. When they tossed hand grenades into the shelter, the grenades were tossed right back at them. A Sherman tank came up and started firing 75mm shells, but had no success. Then a flamethrower unit crept up and tried to fire, but the equipment was soaked from the landing and could not function properly. Thus, they resorted to a TNT pole charge. The explosion did not collapse the shelter, but it certainly killed all the 12 Japanese inside it. Meanwhile, countless units were dealing with machine gun positions aided by the three Sherman tanks. The tanks gradually pierced the barriers, and all the men could proceed. Meanwhile, the 1st Battalion was advancing from the western point, passing Joan Lake by 2 p.m. From there, they ran into some strong machine gun posts 150 yards west of the barrier. B Company of the 1st Battalion rushed over to help F Company from the eastern side of the West Tank Barrier. At this point, the regimental commander, Colonel Conroy, had taken a shot to the head and was dead, leaving Lieutenant Colonel Gerard Kelly, the commander of the 1st Battalion, in charge. Kelly's first order was for C Company to bypass the pocket to their front, while A Company would reinforce B Company. The Japanese defenders were now trapped in the center, being gradually eliminated by the four Shermans. By 5.55 p.m., F Company finally destroyed the last of the enemy in the center of the line and contact was made between the two battalions. After suffering 25 deaths and 62 wounded, the 27th Division had gained a good foothold on Butaritari. The West Tank barrier had been reduced, but the enemy forces in the east still needed to be cleared. The night was very uncomfortable. Japanese snipers harassed the Americans the entire time. Japanese infiltrators were up to their old tricks, calling out in English, throwing firecrackers, and trying to jump into foxholes with their knives. Trigger-happy Americans fired away indiscriminately, causing absolute chaos. A man of the 152nd Engineers ran along the lagoon shore at daybreak from the direction of Anchong's Wharf toward the 2nd Battalion's command post, screaming, There's 150 Japs in the trees. This would cause a wave of hysteria. That morning, Kelly ordered his 1st Battalion to clear the remaining enemy pockets west of the barrier, while the rear of the West Tank Barrier area was finally mopped up. To the east, an air bombardment smashed the area before the eastward advance commenced. Supported by 10 Shermans, the Americans advanced slowly against stiff resistance, successfully overrunning every enemy position they came across. Between 12 to 2 p.m., they were fighting through one of the most heavily defended areas on the island. Machine gun emplacements supported by rifle pits with double apron barbed wire running back and forth were everywhere they looked. 
By 5 p.m., they advanced 1,000 yards at the cost of 18 deaths and 15 wounded. The next day started at 6 a.m., with the 3rd Battalion advancing along the island's highway towards Yellow Beach. As they reached Yellow Beach, 13 medium and light tanks with some engineers fell in line with them, and together they advanced towards Ukigong Point. At 7 a.m., artillery bombarded Ukigong Point, first targeting the East Tank Barrier. Until 8.20, the artillery fired nearly 900 rounds, then the 3rd Battalion began their assault upon four defensive positions that had been abandoned during the night. At 9.15, the men seized the first 250 yards, meeting only light resistance. After this, it became much more fierce. Meanwhile, two detachments of the 105th Regiment, led by Major Herzog, were dispatched to cut off the Japanese line of retreat. They performed an amphibious encirclement maneuver, going through the lagoon. The men embarked on six LVTs and made a three-mile dash across the lagoon to the northeastern point, where they met up with some friendly natives who notified them the Japanese were fleeing eastward across the reef to Kuma. They quickly seized Kuma, and now the enemy on Butaritari was completely cut off from the retreat. With artillery and tank support, the 3rd Battalion managed to attack the Stone Pier area. The tank commanders had learnt many lessons over the past two days. They began using their big guns to reduce buildings ahead of them so that infantry could toss grenades into the smaller shelters. Tank infantry tactics were literally being developed ad hoc, as the men learnt first-hand lessons of war. Tanks opened up with 75mm shells, knocking shelters and infantry stormed in with grenades. Soon the Stone Pier area was clear, and now they began striking the East Tank Barrier. The East Tank Barrier was more heavily fortified than its western counterpart, yet the Japanese abandoned the barrier during the night. Only a few dead Japanese would be found, killed by earlier bombardments. The 3rd Battalion continued past the barrier linking up with A Company by 1.30 p.m., finding no signs of the enemy. Together, they advanced 2,100 yards beyond the narrow neck of the island. They dug in for the night. Each company created a separate defensive perimeter stretching across the width of the island in a line of about 300 yards in length. It was not long during the night when the Japanese got up to their old tricks. Following behind a group of friendly native guides, a group of Japanese infiltrators approached, imitating the cries of babies. The ruse was recognized by a member of the engineer detachment, who fired immediately upon them, killing over 10 Japanese. For the rest of the night, there was intermittent firefights, as infiltrators continuously attacked. The Japanese began to yell and sing songs, many sounding quite drunk. It was not just there that the Japanese attacked. Over on Kuma Island, at around midnight, 10 Japanese attacked the defensive line set up by Major Brandt's men. Although certainly shaken by the night terrors, over 60 Japanese would be killed by the morning of the 23rd. This nearly wiped out the remaining survivors, allowing the Americans to have firm control over Makin. The Americans suffered 58 deaths, 152 wounded on Makin, while the Japanese lost perhaps 800 men and the Americans would capture 105 POWs. The Americans had held an unbelievable superiority during this battle. The ratio of American combat casualties to those of the Japanese, though, was remarkably high. With the battle concluded, most of the 27th Division departed Makin on the 24th, leaving Colonel Clenzin Tenney to lead garrison forces. Tragedy hit that morning when the escort carrier, Liscombe Bay, was sunk by the I-175, who had been hunting around Makin since the arrival of the Americans. This left the death toll at Makin to be 644, including Rear Admiral Henry Mullenix. Back on Tarawa, the Marines were surprised the Japanese did not launch another major counterattack during the first night, which was their typical strategy. General Smith landed his reserve 1st Battalion 8th Marines on Red Beach too, but they took some heavy casualties for this. Many of the men wadding ashore were fired upon, creating a scene of absolute carnage. In central Betio, Colonel Shoup's Marines unleashed a devastating artillery bombardment, using delay fuses in order to penetrate coral and log shelters to hit enemy positions around the triangle. A line just short of the taxiway on the airfield had been formed, as the 1st Battalion began to drive towards the south shore of Betio. The 1st Battalion 8th Marines launched an attack against a very strong defensive position at a juncture on the two right-hand beaches to try and establish contact with the 3rd Battalion 2nd Marines. Other units drove all the way across the island to secure Green Beach. 
The 8th Marines were unable to make any progress against these strong Japanese positions, however. The major success of the day would be landing the reserve 1st and 2nd Battalions, 6th Marines at Green Beach and Bariki Island by the afternoon facing zero opposition. At this point, Colonel Edson landed at Red Beach too, and he took command of the Marine forces until General Smith landed. Colonel Edson spent his first night consulting with Shoup and Hall before ordering a coordinated attack the following morning. Edson noted, Until then, air and naval gunfire had been pretty ineffective because they did not have acute knowledge of American and enemy positions. So Edson ordered spotters to get a better picture of the area and for the 2nd Battalion, 10th Marines artillery to come over. The next morning, the 10th Marines began an artillery bombardment to aid in the attack. At 8 a.m., the 1st Battalion, 6th Marines advanced eastwards down a narrow 100-yard strip of heavily fortified ground between the airfield and the south shore. They rapidly progressed, and by 11 a.m. would reach an area held by the 1st Battalion, 2nd Marines. It was estimated they killed 250 Japanese during this action alone. After completing this action, new orders were issued to continue the advance east to the end of the airfield. They began advancing at 1 p.m., and they hit strong resistance. It would take until the late afternoon to clear the way over. During the afternoon, the 3rd Battalion, 6th Marines landed at Green Beach, and they began advancing up the rear to aid in the assault. Elsewhere on Betio, the 8th Marines were making progress, reducing the strong Burnsville Wharf position. The 18th Marine engineers helped explode portions of steel pillboxes to let their colleagues storm them. One of the positions was a large blockhouse, and when captured, suddenly a large Japanese counterattack emerged to retake it. The 1st Battalion 8th Marines on the western beaches proceeded slowly, with the fighting going on well into the night. Colonel Maurice Holmes, 6th Marines, then relieved the 8th Marines on the front lines. By nightfall on the third day of the battle, the Americans now possessed all of the western end of Betio, going as far east as the eastern end of the airfield, except for some pockets between Red Beach 1 and 2. General Julian Smith finally came ashore at Green Beach just before noon assuming command. Despite these substantial gains, it was estimated that at least five more days of heavy fighting remained before Betio was subdued. Smith gave Holmes the command for the final drive to the eastern tip of Betio. With the new daunting task at hand, Colonel Holmes prepared his forces for the brutal final drive, when all of a sudden 50 Japanese launched a counterattack. By the night of the 22nd, most of the remaining Japanese, roughly 1,000 men, were squeezed onto the eastern narrow tail of the island. At 7.30, a group of 50 Japanese had begun attacking the American positions recently just established. The 1st Battalion, 6th Marines had just assumed responsibility for the whole cross-island line, and the Japanese managed to find a small gap in said line. The Japanese used grenades and bayonets trying to break through, but the Americans were able to quickly encircle and completely annihilate them. Thus, the Japanese were forced to launch a second probing attack later that night, bringing their artillery 75 yards near the Marines' front lines, in an effort to screen their charge. The second attack was a two-pronged movement hitting B Company on the right and A Company on the left. Both Japanese groups were completely obliterated in what became a wild frenzy of hand-to-hand -hand fighting. Then after this, the heaviest counterattack was launched at around 3 a.m. The Japanese made a frontal assault for over an hour. 300 Japanese troops hit both A and B companies, and like their other comrades, they were obliterated that coming morning. These three attacks were in effect bonsai charges, last-ditch efforts to break the Americans and it cost the entire Japanese garrison. Holmes' plans would be unnecessary to reach the eastern tip of Betio Island, as little opposition was to be found. By 10 a.m., the 1st Battalion 8th Marines and the 3rd Battalion 2nd Marines joined together to form a semicircular attack upon the very last enemy pocket. They were supported by 75mm guns that unleashed pure carnage upon the pillboxes, before Marines grabbed prisoners through the burst-open holes from their shelters. Tarawa saw an estimated 4,690 Japanese and Koreans killed, with 17 Japanese and 129 Korean POWs captured. The Marines suffered 1,009 deaths, 2,101 wounded, and 191 missing in action. Vandegrift would tell the New York Times on December the 27th, Tarawa was an assault from beginning to end. We must steal ourselves now to pay that price.
November the 24th would see the rest of the Tarawa Atoll get mopped up, and by the 29th, Ambiang, Marake, and Miana Atolls were also occupied. On the 21st, the 5th Amphibious Corps Reconnaissance Company landed on Apamama under naval gunfire support from their submarine and escorting destroyer. They would encounter resistance from 23 Japanese whom they neutralized by the next day. With this, Operation Galvanic had successfully been accomplished. The operation, as we will see in the future weeks, provided dire lessons to the Allies about what the rest of the war would look like. As Vandegrift would later remark, Tarawa was the first example in history of a seaborne assault against a heavily defended coral atoll. In the final analysis, success at Tarawa depended upon the discipline, courage, and the fighting ability of the individual Marine. Seldom has anyone been called upon to fight a battle under more difficult circumstances. It was under these circumstances where the de facto practice of taking no prisoners would easily become the norm. The Japanese soldiers were faking deaths, hiding grenades to take Allied men down with them. Suicide attacks were increasing exponentially. And thus the age-old phrase would be adopted by the Marines. Shoot first, ask questions later. I would like to take this time to remind all of you that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Please go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, the Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that, you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel over at YouTube. Over there, I just released an episode on France's role during the Pacific War, in both French and English. Also, please check out my Patreon account at www.patreon.com slash the Pacific War Channel for more exclusive podcasts. This month's exclusive podcast over there is about a man who fought for Japan, then the USSR, and then for Nazi Germany. Although, this man probably never existed. Yes, a very weird episode. Please check it out. Operation Galvanic had finally been accomplished. It cost countless lives, and it would be one of the major bitter lessons learned by the Americans during the Pacific War. The enemy was going to defend every single inch of their territory until the last man. Would America have the stomach to drive it home?